The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, uh, we continue this morning in our series on the Apostles' Creed, thinking about the Lord Jesus. We come this morning to that article in the Apostles' Creed regarding Jesus' virgin birth. Now, uh, open to Matthew chapter 1, if you haven't already. Uh, join me in Matthew chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning as we think about this wonderful topic. And uh, I, I don't know about you, and I, I don't hear it very much in the Midwest, and the only way I knew about this growing up was because it was a thing at my grandparents' house in New Jersey. Christmas in July. Anybody? Christmas in July? That was a thing at, at my grandparents' uh, their, their beach community in Wildwood Crest, New Jersey. There would be a thing and a sleigh and up and down the streets with Bermuda shorts giving out presents in July. And I was always absolutely confused, but I didn't care because I got a present. Uh, well, if you take a sneak peek ahead, actually, at our hymn of response and our closing hymn, uh, we're singing Christmas carols uh, for the remainder of the service. So uh, Merry Christmas in July to you uh, as we consider Jesus's virgin birth as to what the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Do you believe that? Many people don't. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States of America, said, a day will come when the mystical spiritual birth of Jesus in the womb of a virgin will be classified as a fable. The same type of fable as the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. He's referring there to the generation of the daughter of Jupiter, Minerva, in the Roman pantheon, and saying there's going to come a day when the religion of Jesus will be classified in the same category as the fables and myths of the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon. Well, skepticism over the virgin birth has escalated since then. The claim is that miracles cannot happen and therefore they do not happen. But I want to say to you at the, at the beginning here uh, that the birth of Jesus was perfectly normal. And there was nothing supernatural about the birth of Jesus. There was nothing unusual about the way Jesus was born. Jesus did not just miraculously appear out of nowhere in a stable in Bethlehem. No, his mother, Mary, carried him in her womb through a full term of pregnancy. It was no doubt Mary received congratulations for her pregnancy as she walked around uh, the town. They saw visual evidence of this expectant mother. It is not the birth of Jesus that brings about skepticism, but rather Jesus's miraculous spiritual conception that broke the norms of human experience. And that's what we're going to think about this morning. How is it, how is it that our Savior has into the world. Why does it matter? What do we believe about this virgin conception and birth of Jesus? If you've got your Bible open, let's pray, and we will hear God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn now to the scriptures as we have sung the truth of the scriptures and prayed the truth of the scriptures, been called to worship and called to repentance and given the assurance of the gospel through the words of the scriptures. And 
So, Lord, we, we do that because it is in your word that you reveal to us the truth of who you are, the truth of your Savior, the truth of Jesus. So, Lord, as you have given the scriptures to teach us, we pray that, that we would have a teachable spirit, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would desire to grow and to believe and to confess before the world your Son, Jesus. So come, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, that as you have inspired these words to us, inspire them upon us as we believe them by faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew. Chapter 1, look at verse 18 under the heading, The Birth of Jesus Christ. And hear now the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth upon our hearts today. We believe in Jesus Christ. Received by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. When the Apostles' Creed says, we believe in Jesus Christ, you'll notice as you look back at the bulletin that the articles concerning Christ are, 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 are the greatest and the, the most to be expounded upon. That's because the Christian faith is founded upon the truth of who Jesus is. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, the Creed then specifies what Christ, what we believe about Christ, his person, his work, his ministry. We come now to the story of his birth, his miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then his birth by his mother, Mary. I'm going to flip back and forth just a bit between Luke and Matthew, uh, because as I was telling the Sunday school class earlier, the only narrative accounts of the virgin birth are found in Matthew and Luke. The other two Gospels are, are not as concerned and focused on those details, but Matthew is written from the perspective of Joseph. Luke is written from the perspective of Mary. Uh, you have in this Annunciation both to Joseph and Mary the experience of what would have been, on the surface, a, a great catastrophe and shame to come upon this new family. The announcement to Mary in Luke's Gospel does not leave her saying, Hooray, and what a, what a wonderful thing, and I can't believe it. I've always wanted this to happen to me. The Annunciation to Mary leaves her troubled. Uh, uncertain, trusting to be sure, but a little unnerved, perplexed, worried. And you can't blame her. You cannot blame her. Back in Luke's Gospel, the angel shows up to Mary and, 
and says, you're a mother. And the child you're going to bear is God, who will reign as king over all the nations. He is the Messiah. And Mary is perplexed that she's pregnant. Where most of us perhaps would receive an annunciation like that and, and be proud perhaps. Yeah, I'm going to give birth to the king of the world and want to talk about this son. Mary just receives it in humility, out of concern, uncertain because there's no way she could possibly have a baby because she understands how babies come into the world. The way the Bible presents the birth of Jesus is not a way a person would present it if they were making it up. Because it's far too honest about the concerns and the questions and the uncertainties. If the Christian church was making this up and creating a fable and later on going back to write it into history, they would present it much more triumphalistically. But instead it's presented with great humility, with not a lot of explanation because it's to be received by faith. We might assume that Mary would be dancing in the streets and singing Christmas carols, but instead she's unnerved. And so is Joseph in Matthew's Gospel. Perhaps even more so, as you look at Matthew's Gospel, as you look at the way Joseph receives the news, Joseph finds out about this, and the first thing that he does is resolve to divorce Mary. We're going to defend Joseph here. We're told that Joseph is a righteous man, that he's a kind man, that he is betrothed to Mary, but not yet wed to her. Uh, we might think of betrothal and engagement as the same category, but it's not. In the ancient world, betrothal had a legal binding status that gave way to marriage once the, the marriage was consummated. But they're just betrothed. They've not yet come together in sexual union. And so Joseph has a legal obligation to Mary, but then finds out that Mary is somehow pregnant. And rather than embarrass her, rather than publicly shame her, the Bible says that he resolves to divorce her quietly. That is to say, not to make a mockery out of her. He's been betrayed by her. That's all he understands. But rather than make a mockery and a shame of her, he resolves to divorce her quietly, which is why the angel has to say to him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has happened to her is not a consequence of sin, but rather the righteousness of God revealed as the Holy Spirit has conceived a child in the womb of your betrothed. You can trust this woman, Joseph. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. But the reaction of Joseph to this news initially is something that we might expect, saying we're going to break off this betrothal because she's betrayed me, and I don't want to take her to the law courts. I'll just do it quietly. And there is the explanation. In verse 18, Matthew 1, verse 18, before they came together, to emphasize that Mary is a virgin, let the reader understand. Joseph had not known her, verse 25, until she had given birth to a son. How does the Bible explain Mary's pregnancy? How does the Bible explain the means by which the Lord Jesus, the second person of the eternal triune Godhead, come into the world? The first explanation is there in verse 18. The angel says, Mary's child has come from the Holy Spirit. And then more specifically in verse 20, what is conceived in her 
is from the Holy Spirit. These were the words that the angel sent to Joseph as he considered ending the relationship with Mary and all thoughts of future marriage. The affirmation to Joseph, Joseph, this is God's doing. It is miraculous. It is supernatural. Your virgin betrothed is with child. Now, 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. That's quoted for us in verse 23, quoting the prophet Isaiah. And according to the prophet, the birth of this unique child who would come into the world by supernatural conception, by the Holy Spirit, in the womb of a virgin, would be a sign to all the world to declare that by this supernatural conception, God is providing a Messiah to the fallen race of men and women. And based on this biblical testimony, the church through all the ages has confessed what we said, I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now it can be somewhat confusing because it is not the birth itself, as I said, that's supernatural, it's quite natural. Jesus is born the same way you were born. But his conception is supernatural. I've been quoting oftentimes to you from C.S. Lewis and always reminding you that great Christian author, Mind Witch of the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, famous author. He was a literature professor at Oxford. And one Christmas at Oxford, he was with a, a friend who was a faculty member, and they were visiting in C.S. Lewis's office, and this faculty member, who was a friend of his, was, was a great skeptic of the Christian faith. And C.S. Lewis had already come to believe and trust in Jesus, and so they were having some dialogue, and the window was open, even though it was wintertime, and there were carolers out in the yard outside of the faculty offices, and the carolers were singing Christmas carols, singing about the virgin birth, singing about the immaculate uh, birth of Jesus Christ, and this friend who was visiting C.S. Lewis shook his head, kind of arrogantly saying to C.S. Lewis, aren't you glad that we don't believe that nonsense? Aren't you glad that we know better than they? And C.S. Lewis said to him, what do, you, what do you mean? What do you mean that we know better? And the skeptical professor says, well, aren't you glad that we know that virgins don't give birth? We know that. What a silly thing. C.S. Lewis paused for a moment and responded to him and said, don't you think everybody knows that? Don't you think everybody knows that virgins don't give birth? It's not a, a new thought to a higher age of intelligentsia. Everybody knows this doesn't happen, which is why it's so fantastic, which is why it's so unique, which is why it's so miraculous, which is why it's so distinct. And isn't that the whole point? The whole point is that people are not running around Bethlehem having virgin births every Wednesday. It's not a thing that happens, which is why it's distinct 
Which is why the attention is drawn in Matthew and Luke to say, this is a singular event. This is an exclusive reality. There is nothing like this. There is no other person who has come into the world like this because there is no one else like Jesus in all history. No one has been born this way, not yet, not since, or ever again. It means that there is no one like Jesus, the uniqueness of Christ, who we confess as Lord and King and Savior and Redeemer and Messiah is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born in the Virgin Mary. It means that Jesus cannot be explained on natural terms and must be received by faith. And like Thomas Jefferson predicted, many people in his day, in Jesus' own day, and in our day, reject this claim. Some people refer to the, the virgin conception of Jesus as the entrance myth. That Jesus enters the world by a myth, by a fable, and he exits the world by a myth and a fable. But we believe in the fact that Jesus has come into the world by his virgin conception, and he exits the world by his glorious resurrection and then ascension. Not as a fable, not as a myth, but as a miraculous testimony at bookends of his earthly life to say, this unique Savior. And what's interesting to me is that many people believe that they're far too sophisticated to receive such things. They're much too high-minded and much too, perhaps they would say, scientific or reasonable or rational to believe such things. And actually, that mindset of what we call higher critical theology, or let it be very clearly said, liberal Protestantism, had its heyday in the previous century and destroyed the mainline churches who said it's possible for us to reject the miraculous claims of the Bible and still say we believe the Bible because we don't want to be seen as foolish. So we can say, look, you can give or take all this miracle stuff, but you should still believe in Jesus. But why would you believe in a Jesus that is totally naturally explained? They were embarrassed to say the previous generation of Protestantism was embarrassed to say, I believe in Jesus Christ conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. They were embarrassed because they thought it made them look foolish in the eyes of an unbelieving world. And so they said, well, we don't have to believe that in order to be a true Christian church. Dear friends, don't you ever be embarrassed. Don't you ever be embarrassed by the doctrine of the Apostles' Creed because it's the doctrine of the Bible. Don't be embarrassed. Don't hang your head. Don't mumble. Lift your head. Say it with a clear voice. I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I am not ashamed. You know, uh, Loud Thunder, VBS, they've got a life-size, you know, big version of Jenga. You know the Jenga game, right? The different pieces stacked up. People like to oftentimes believe that the Christian faith is like that. You can, you know, take this piece out and rearrange it up there and turn it sideways and you can rearrange the tower of the teaching of the Bible and make it more acceptable to a modern age, perhaps. They're tempted to think that the Christian faith is like a Jenga game, that it's possible to remove and shift and reorder the various teachings of the Bible to make them more palatable and prevent it from falling as you stack it up wobbly and wobbly. Dear friends, if you do that to the Christian faith, it is a one-move Jenga game. Any piece that you remove brings the whole thing down. 
don't get to take this out and that out and rearrange it this way and that way and keep it together. No, no, no. If you remove the virgin conception of Jesus Christ from the Apostles' Creed, there goes your Savior. Why? That's what we want to think about. The witness of the Bible, without shame, is that the birth of Jesus came as a result of a miraculous and supernatural intervention of God. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why should you stake your life upon this teaching of the Bible? The affirmation of the creed throughout the generations. Three reasons. By his virgin conception, Jesus is, first of all, truly God and truly man. That is to say, because Jesus is conceived in the womb of Mary, the second person of the Trinity assumes a human nature and is born of a woman. That is to say, Jesus is truly a man. He's really human. He has a mother. He's born just like you were. He is the seed of the woman that was promised from Genesis 3.15 to come to crush the head of the serpent. He is born of a human mother after a normal period of gestation. He's a man. And he's God. Because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth is the only way. The only way Jesus can be truly God and truly man. Now that's not to say that the Christian church invented this to justify the claim that Jesus is truly God, truly man. No, it's there from the beginning. That Mary will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit upon her to conceive in her earthly human womb the second person of the eternal triune God. should cause you to just wonder. By his virgin conception, Jesus is truly God and truly man. That matters. That's number one. Number two, by his virgin conception, Jesus is born without original sin. And it is necessary that he be born without original sin because all humanity, the Bible teaches, all humanity is born in Adam. That is to say, you are born by natural generation, inheriting from Adam, your spiritual father, his original sin and guilt and unrighteousness. We are born sinful, but by his virgin birth, Jesus does not inherit from Adam original sin. The original sin that passes through all generations of all humanity, including your family and mine, is not sin that is inherited by Jesus because he is not born of Adam, he is born by the Spirit. Jesus does not inherit the sin of Adam by natural generation. You and I are born in Adam, Jesus is not. Jesus has no original sin, and throughout his life he commits no actual sin, which is why we say Jesus is sinless, not just because he doesn't sin, but because he is not born in sin as we are. By his virgin conception, Jesus is born without original sin. That's the second thing. And the third, by his virgin conception, Jesus is God's gracious gift of a Savior to sinful humanity. 
when you encounter the virgin conception, when you encounter this miraculous work of God, what you are encountering is God's miraculous, redemptive act upon a creation that has fallen into sin and cannot redeem itself. This is God's gift. Jesus is God's gift to humanity. Sinful humanity needs a savior and can't produce one. Try as we might, you and I will never put somebody forward to the front of the line to say, we're going to put our hopes in this one or that one. We can do it. We can create it. We can produce our own Savior. It's not possible, which is why God graciously provides. So when you see the virgin birth, what you see is the wonderful, redemptive, initiative act of God's sovereign grace to do what we can't do. And it must come by these means. It is the unmistakable reminder that salvation is never produced by human effort, but always by divine grace. The virgin birth emphasizes this very reality, and that's what Christmas is about. God's supernatural intervention into the world and a fallen humanity and a fallen creation that is hopeless apart from someone who will be truly human and can therefore represent humanity but also be truly God and therefore be sinless. And it's all God's gracious display of redemptive love and sovereign mercy and grace for we who have fallen in sin to provide his own son through this extraordinary means of a Holy Spirit conception. Without a virgin birth, history has no savior. But by this divine conception and birth of a virgin, God provides a savior. When you see Jesus Christ, the Bible tells you that you see that God is with you. And it should not surprise us that the same Christ who comes into the world and does wonderful things. He puts his hand upon lepers and comforts those who are shamed because they're sin. The one who causes the, the seas to be stilled and the one who provides bread to the hungry, the one who raises the dead, the one who himself raises himself from the dead as all authority is given to him is the same one who comes into the world by this incredible supernatural means. The absolute uniqueness of Jesus. So what should you do? What should you do, dear Christian? As you, as you go to work and as you go to school and as you interact socially with other people who might have divided opinions about this or perhaps no opinions whatsoever, who haven't thought about this, who don't think about it, who don't care, what should you do? First of all, you should respond in faith to the claims of the Bible. You should believe. You should believe. And say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And not only should you believe, you should confess. You should say it out loud. The promises of the gospel are not meant to be kept by you hidden, but rather to be proclaimed. The glories and uniqueness of Jesus Christ 
are meant to be received in faith and then responded to in confession and then also to with trust. Do you trust this miraculously conceived, born of a virgin Savior who has come into the world, truly God, truly man, to be the one who can satisfy for your sins and your unrighteousness and provide to you eternal life by the offering of his own life. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can do this. I feel this every time I, I, I do funerals, especially when you know it, it's filled with the multiple generations of people, and I, I can't help but wonder, I cannot help but wonder what people think. You know, there's this preacher talking about resurrection business and all this and that. It's so easy to just dismiss it as myth, isn't it? Oh, just Romans pantheon, Greeks Parthenon, God. The Bible declares Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is to be received, confessed, and trusted. Your friends, your neighbors need that. You need that. Don't be ashamed. Confess it with faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God. And we marvel and are filled with wonder and awe and love at the glorious truth of what you have done in sending your son into the world. Born of a virgin. How staggering. It fills us with awe and worship. So Lord, move our hearts as we worship you now. Respond in faith and in love to Jesus Christ, the only Savior. We pray in his name. Merry Christmas. Let's stand and sing a Christmas carol, shall we? Number Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.